Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? Sakisha ga mukashi no kutsu o yomu. And how do you say it in English? Writer's League de Ori s. Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read Their Early Shit Conversations with authors and artists about the lopsided pleasures of their pre developed, over early, unripe work. I'm your host, Jason Emdy, and my special guest this week was in high school, voted most likely to own a station wagon, appeared alongside Jason Statham in 2006's Unloved in the Name of the King, a dragon siege tale, and was the city of Victoria's inaugural poet laureate. Groovy City, Victoria. Her books include the poetry collections Gloryland, Headful of Sun, and Blessing the Bones into Light. And she's also the author of the memoirs Every Little Scrap and Wonder, A Small Town Childhood, which is wonderful. And most recently, Mennonite Valley Girl, A Wayward Coming of Age, which is also wonderful, especially if you like Glass Tiger. And who doesn't? Right here, right now, it's Carla Funk. Hi, Carla. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to do it.、Um, I get a little starstruck when I talk to writers I admire. So if I fumble around a bit, please, please take it as a compliment. Okay. I welcome fumbles because I will feel in good company then. A couple of questions just before we get to, your, to some of your early shit. If a, if a book burglar broke into your house and stole just one book, What would you be saddest to lose? Ooh. You ask good questions, Jason. Thank you. <laughs> I would be sad to lose. Oh, I know. I would be sad to lose the hymnal, the hymn book that I stole from the Mennonite church of my childhood.、Mm. I, I, used to, I was the dutiful piano player once a month at the Mennonite church that my father. The whole, the whole funk family attended. And I never gave back the hymnal that they gave me to practice with. And I felt really good and really evil for keeping it. <laughs> and so this book has followed me all the way from my hometown. It came with me to university, which I don't know really why I brought it, but it has stayed with me. And so every once in a while, I pull that book out and I play these old hymns that I grew up. Not only singing or being told I was supposed to sing as a kid, but that book,、um, I played out of practice out of that book、um, and plodded along to the you know, the chords in those hymns、mm-hmm. um, dutifully. And so I would be sad to lose that book because I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's almost this, I almost feel as though that book is going to end up being. Used for my own funeral, and somebody, somebody will sit at the piano and play some ripping old hymn out of my stolen hymn book.、Mm. And then they'll lay it in the ground with me. I don't know. <laughs> That's one book I'd be, I'd be sad to see go. Are you, are you one of those people that thinks about your funeral and how it should look and how people Absolutely- should react? <laughs> <laughs> Are there people who don't, Jason? <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. I,、um, oh, yeah. As a, oh, as a teenager, I would lie. I can remember lying in the dark in my basement bedroom. And I would, especially if I was feeling really sorry for myself about, I don't know, a bad hair day or something, I would,、um, 
I would think about how sad people would be if I, I mean, I hoped they'd be sad. And then I would, I would just get this thrill out of imagining people sad that I died. And, and then who would, who would cry the most and, and maybe what I'd be buried in. I think part of that comes from my Mennonite heritage, which we're just all about the reality of death and dying. And as a kid, I mean, I was, led around the sanctuary of the church to view the open casket of great grandpa funk um at a, as four years old at four years old like it was just part of the process of being a human so death wasn't something to be feared um it was just there and the bigger the family the more chance that someone's dying at some you know there's mm. always somebody dying so yes i absolutely fantasize my funeral fantasize seems like the wrong word i would think about it and um <laughs> Probably less so now, though. Interestingly, as I get older, as I'm you get avoidance. older, care less. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or I'm in avoidance mode of my mortality. I don't want to talk about it. No. When you were writing your these memoirs, to, sort of, to what extent did you just sit down and write what you remembered, and then how did you augment it? I'm really curious about this. You know, mm. with photographs, and did you go back through all the, your old childhood photographs and go, okay, yeah, right. Okay. And then pluck the detail because the, the books are both very detailed. Did you pluck the details out of the photographs or out of your memory or uh, to what degree did you do either of those? It's a very clumsy question. I'm sorry, but I think you know what I mean. I like your use of the word augment because I think that's very much what the process feels like to me. It's like augmented reality. Um, I absolutely used photographs and I relied very much on my brother and trying to rebuild my memory, which is very, I do have a hoarder's memory. I was chatting with my husband about this and I'll say, how can you not remember certain details? And he'll say, it's just not important to me. So I just get rid of it. <laughs> and I, I'm like, that's amazing. But I feel as though my memory is like a storage facility where people go and store their excess Christmas decorations or their excess summer furniture. They go and put it in a storage locker at, you know, U storage or one of those places. I have a, a hoarding memory and I can't get rid of any of it. And I think it's, well, absolutely serves me as a writer. I don't know how I would write memoir if I couldn't remember, but it also sometimes disturbs me because I will remember so specifically certain things, even things that were said. Now, obviously, in a memoir, I'm also reimagining dialogue as best I can approximate. Like, this is the sort of thing that I can remember being said, or mm. this is the, the something that a person um, definitely would have said in this circumstance or would have phrased it this way. So there's that process as well, trying to rebuild with as much honesty, but also it's not, I didn't take notes and recordings at the time, but back to photographs. Yes. I studied photographs. I looked through albums. I talked to my brother, I would write a passage and then I would say, does this, does this sound like your experience or do you remember this? And he would often say, actually, it wasn't in December, it was in June. And then I go, whoa, my whole season has to change here and I have to go back and try again. Right, yeah. So high school friends were very uh, helpful. I would ask them, what do you remember about this? And like you were saying, Jason, when you see a photograph of yourself that you didn't know existed or you forgot existed, I would have my high school friends 
say, do you remember when you did such and such? And I would think, I don't remember what. And then they would start to tell the story and it would start to come back. And those were really disturbing in a good way. But it was, I would be just so surprised that I had forgotten something so key and uh, and I that I loved it. Those felt like gifts to me. Um, they didn't mm. always make it in the writing, but sometimes there were details that were shared with me that I they were just not on my radar. But for some reason, one of my friends remembered, or my brother remembered, or my mother remembered, and then it became really useful. So yes, I asked a lot of questions. But when I would start the process of writing a particular story or a scene, I would just do like a data dump on the page. I would just write everything I can remember in a very messy form. So just pouring it all out of my brain. And then I would sort of start to clean it up and find some shape to it. And then I would start to ask questions of other people or look at photographs or um, sometimes it would be a case of, well, what would have been on TV on a Friday night? And then I go find old TV listings and think, yep, that would be it you know, name the show. So um, if I mention a song playing on the stereo, it would be a song that was often played on the stereo. And whether it was played on that specific night, Mm. I can't be positive, but it was played often enough that it was a song that burns in my mind as, as being there all the time. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Great. I was very conscious the whole time writing a memoir that it although yes okay it's it's my life it really isn't I don't think that memoirs are ultimately about the main purpose is not to tell the story of the person whose life the memoir is centered in Mm. I just I love to think of the memoir as a lens through which to view the world and it is set in time and space in a particular location a particular era in a particular uh and it's looking from a particular angle but honestly writing memoir made me realize that my life is just one speck on this planet and i it made me want to have everybody write their memoirs because it's just a way of knowing the world through somebody else's lens Mm. like i i don't know if that's articulating enough but i i found it a very humbling process in absolutely no way did I ever feel like, wow, my life is worthy of of memoir. It's not at all. In fact, I would think like, what's, I have nothing interesting to say, but the world in which I grew up, I think it's, I think the world is interesting Mm. and the people around me are interesting and the details of that world are interesting. And I just felt, I feel as though I just got to be the lens through which readers might be able to look at that world. But I like the idea of the life as a lens through which to see. And I think if we're paying attention, our lives are can be clear lenses or they can be really cloudy and blurry and kind of mm-hmm. cracked a bit. Um, so the goal is to get some clarity about one's own existence or life in various times of your of your existence get clarity enough that you can show the world with honesty, show the world, uh, show the world around you or show the people around you yeah. with honesty. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. And I love that you put it really beautifully that 
it's a it's not you who who cares about Jason MD or Carla Funk it's the exactly. lens through which you can see that that place in that time that's yeah and you know Vanderhoof Vander I just love saying Vanderhoof <laughs> so do I I love it it's um it's a great it's a it's a funny it feels like the punchline to a joke and I think it, yes. it was a lot in that yes. area and like oh you're from Vanderhoof yeah you know, you're a Vander Hoovian and, oh, you're from the hoof. That's what people tend to call it, the hoof. You know, Vanderhoof, <laughs> at one point when I was growing up there, they boasted the most churches per capita in all of Canada. In and, all of Canada? Hmm. Yeah, most churches per capita. And they weren't all Mennonite churches, although there are a lot still. There are quite a few. There's a quite a, a large Mormon population, but we had everything. We had united and anglican and lutheran and pentecostal we had two pentecostals we had lots of mennonites uh catholic they were just there were just so many churches and um, even with a population of yes. three thousand or whatever yes yeah so there was that joke my one of my high school friends said there was the m&ms and the oh gosh i'm not gonna remember see he had a joke and i remember i'm not even remembering all of it but the m&ms were the mennonites and mormons and and then you were you were either the mennonites and the mormons or you were going to hell is essentially the idea you were just anon you were anon 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 <laughs> um, yeah so the m&ms yeah it, it's just it was a very very conservative very um devout and I, there, I mean, I can remember as a kid, probably heading right into teenage years, it was a big, big deal when the co-op grocery store decided to open on a Sunday. I mean, people were boycotting it right? because it was open on the Sabbath. And that was not in 1970s. Like that was been, been like late 80s. So, yeah, it, I mean, that's the kind of town it is. And they're they're wonderful people very wonderful, hardworking, funny, and, and also just very, very traditional. There was a belief at one point that Vanderhoof was going to be an, a colony for artists and creative types. That was the whole mission or the, the vision mm. of Herbert Vanderhoof, this Chicago newspaper man. He wanted a haven for creative types and artists. And instead it was Mennonites and farmers and loggers. And um, that's who ended up there. <laughs> it strikes me as early shit, you know, a bunch of not very talented guys. Say, what should we call it? Mm, I don't know. Getting drunk, getting stoned. Some guy go, I got it. Glass tiger. Glass tiger. What does yeah. it mean, man? I don't know, but it's open to into. Oh. Yeah, yeah, great. What does it mean? Did, did you ever know? I don't know what it means, but I, I I do have that same thought as you, which is that probably somebody liked the word tiger and then they tried a whole bunch of adjectives <laughs> yes. like metal tiger, titanium tiger, platinum tiger. Cosmic like, no, tiger. Exactly. And this was like, tiger. you know, oh. and then they went, wait a minute, it's a tiger and it's strong, but what's really fragile? Glass. <laughs> What shows so, both sides of us? Yes, sensitive exactly. and tough. Yeah, yes, yeah. I'm. Sh I'm sure that that's that's probably that's 
my imagined thought process for the naming. I hope, I hope it was like um, the, the quiet bass player who went, hey guys, just a second, knock it off with the ragged tiger and the savage tiger. And the... Do, you, do you want to hear a fun fact about Glass Tiger? Uh, yes, their I do. Original, their original band name was Tokyo. Oh, really? Yeah. See, everybody wants to get out, man. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they formed in gosh early '80s, and yeah, their original um, their original band name was Tokyo, Tokyo, which is just funny because it's like they're in in the you know a smaller city. I'm not can't remember where in Ontario, but they're in Ontario, and they just probably choose the one place that they think is so cool and, and so far away. Yeah, exactly. None of them are Japanese, but they they call their band Tokyo anyway. If I were to start a band tomorrow, I'd call it Vanderhoof. There's no question. Well, get in line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Carla, do you have some, some early shit for us? Well, you know, if my, my Mennonite grandmother were listening, she would, she would call it shite because shite. They, yes, which I really like. So mm, that's, me too. Um, she would say, Oh boss, I have some shite on my boots. Um, and she picture her just with her little kerchief on her head and her, her gum boots. And she's come in from the farmyard and she's got shite on her boots. Um, and yeah, as a writer, I definitely have some shite on my boots. Um, and th that being the, the shite of my early, early days, what, what are you, uh, what are you looking for here, Jason? What, how far, far back do you want me to go? Or it's how, awful. How far it's shite? Terrible. Yeah. Um, oh. well, you said that, and you talk about it in, I think it's in Mennonite Valley Girl, that you were working on the newspaper and they mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. gave you your own column. Oh, yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. I, I, I can't even, I, I pulled up, I pulled out some of the old columns and I, I would have been 16, 17 mm -hmm. and I didn't, I got never trained as a journalist. I took a correspondence course called journalism. I think I did. Yeah, I did some sort of writing course and there was like a journalism unit or something. And all it was is, you know, write a little article in the style of a newspaper article. That's as much training as I had. Um, they originally, the, the Vanderhoof newspaper, hired me because I could type really fast. But mm -hmm. when their summer co-op student, who was interestingly from the University of Victoria, uh, turned out to be an alcoholic who could not meet deadlines. They fired him and they they had no summer reporter. And they said, would you like to be our reporter? So I'm all of 16. And I said, sure. And that, for some reason, then they gave me um, a humor column. And it <laughs> wait, was wait just a second. terrible. Carla, why did you say sure? If you... I I get the sense that you didn't see yourself as a writer at the time. What was it? Was it for money? Was it for glory in Vanderhoof? What was it? Well, I mean, they it paid well in that I think I made $600 every paycheck, every two weeks, which was, I just couldn't believe I was rolling in the dough. At 16 um, or 17. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah. I know. At the end of the summer, I went on a shopping trip and bought myself a $500 leather jacket with bat sleeves and snakeskin mm. print on it and i still have it in my closet and it, it's it's horrible it's huge soldier pads as the week after i bought it i knew i'd made a mistake but that's another story they hired me to be a reporter and they were they the the men who ran the news department just gave me a quick lesson on 
how a general, you know, how an article is put together and you always save your least important information for the end of the article. But then the, it was the editor, a man named John, who said, well, do you want a, a weekly column? And I think I loved the idea of my name being in print for sure. And I did have this little thing in me that was starting to be interested in the idea of writing. I didn't know it would be possible to do it as a career, but I liked the way writing made me feel. And I liked that I could go into a journal secretly and pour out all of my thoughts and feelings and have it as this almost like a confessional. Mennonites didn't have the, the confessional like Catholics did, but that's what a journal felt like to me. So anyway, I get this column and I think I was just told like, write about something that you think is interesting. And oh yeah, it's just terrible. I can read you part of one. <laughs> okay. And, and um, the thing that makes me cringe the most is how I sound so cocky. Like I know, I know what I'm talking about and I'm so funny. It's just terrible. Anyway, <laughs> the, the column was called These Days with okay. Carla Funk. These mm. Days. These Days. And this These Days. And I did not name that. That was given. But um, yeah, great name. Um, here's, here's a column and the title is Words Can Backfire. Mm. And I didn't mean it with any irony, I don't think, um, looking ahead into the future. But uh, here we are 30 years later, and the title seems appropriate. Words Can Backfire by Carla Funk. I have always tended to be a bit of a critic ever since I can remember. If you talk to my family, they'll back me up on this one. I seemed to have been born with one particular gift, the art of intimidating people. Honestly, Jason, I don't even know what I'm talking about here. Now, I don't just mean the name-calling, insulting, intimidation that is so common in society. Ugh. I'm talking downright making people feel like low dogs intimidation. I don't even know where the low dogs expression comes in. But anyway, low dogs. just ask, I know, low dogs. Just ask my brother about this one. All I have to do to make my brother mad is say something like, nice pants. I hope you're not going out in public like that. He tries to ignore me, but after a few minutes, he runs downstairs and changes. Or, whoa, are you going bald already? This has proven to be the killer comment. The day after this insult, I heard him asking my mom if baldness was hereditary in the family. And of course, there's the traditional, I can tell who's been eating chocolate lately. Ever think of starting a zit farm? It goes on, Jason. It's just terrible. It's not funny. It's um <laughs> I disagree. It's, it's hilarious. Oh, but no, it's not. This was deemed <laughs> yeah. for the what what did you say? Fifteen hundred people in Vanderhoof? Uh thirty five hundred. Okay, yeah. thirty five hundred. Uh yeah. appropriate entertainment for their, you know. I guess. I for guess their morning um, coffee. I have other columns on the joys of being a vegetarian. I was very proud of myself that I was a vegetarian in a mm -hmm. highly carnivorous um, family. Um, gosh, I have one that actually um, ended up, it, it's a whole column about what grade eight students should expect when they arrive for the first day of high school. Our high school ran from grade eight to grade 12. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the initiation, about how they had to, uh, the initiation day, consists of several obstacle events like the shoot and run in which grade eights must dodge the missiles of <laughs> staple guns and flames of propane torches fired <sighs> by the superior grade 12s. Um, 
yeah, they're uh, they're asked to show up and wear dark camouflage clothing. And anyway, I mean, I thought I was being really funny. The high school actually got some calls about concerned from concerned parents whose grade eight students were very nervous about the first day of school as a result of the column, as a result of this column. And I felt really, really good about it. It's just terrible. Anyway. You felt famous about it? I felt like, wow, my writing must have been really authentic because it convinced them to be scared. It was just bad. There's one thing in um, Midnight Valley Girl that had me on the floor laughing, but I thought that that can't be, be true. <laughs> she plans to use some of her earnings toward a possible trip to France with the school's French club, which is holding its first fundraiser, a rockathon next month. Participating students will gather pledges to rock all night in rocking chairs. To financially support a rockathon rocker, contact the high school office it's and all ask, true. ask it's... for Monsieur Murphy. Yes, it's all true. It's really? all true. That actually oh. happened? Yes, I rocked all night in a portable attached to the high school. Um, it was, it was, I was, it was terrible. Like emotion sick by the end of the night, we just put on movies and we sat in the dark in our rocking chairs, <laughs> rocking and rocking and rocking. And Monsieur Murphy chaperoned us monsieur murphy yeah. now what kind of sadistic town doesn't just give you people money say here's your money for your trip to france no who came up with that rock idea that's what i we had we rocked all night i think somebody thought i don't know i don't know why we thought this but yeah we did a rockathon in rocking chairs we rocked all night and we were all motion sick so we felt so ill i remember true. it's totally wow. true um, it was the dumbest fundraiser I think I've ever been a part of. It's certainly the never dumbest made it I've to ever France. heard of. But yeah. we, we never made it to France either. Because rocking chairs, Jason, they don't, they just are stationary. They just yeah, stay on spot. They don't. No, I thought, I thought that was an example of your sort of maybe increasing boredom writing this column and then inventing <laughs> stuff that didn't actually exist. Oh, that, wow. that existed. Yeah, that, one, that one's cow. true. <laughs> oh, the rockathon! Such a as soon as I saw rockathon, I thought that's great. Like sponsor kids to rock all night to Glass Tiger and uh, Brian Adams. Maybe there might some, have been some, some kiss, you know. There, there might have been some music playing on a ghetto blaster in the corner a of that blaster. dark <laughs> of a dark portable. <laughs> I can I can actually picture as soon as you said rockathon, I'm picturing where I was in the portable. It was really cold because um, it wasn't very well insulated, and I was in one of those rocking chairs that had a sort of uh, it was like a not a wicker but almost like a plastic mesh insert in the wooden frame. And um, yeah, I can picture it. It was a dark brown, and it gradually moved a few inches, you know, every probably 15 minutes or so you would have creeped along the carpet a little mm -hmm. bit, but um, I can picture where I was in that room. And I was just so tired by two in the morning. It's like, I don't want to rock anymore. I'm done rocking. Uh, yeah. But we rocked until 7am, seven to seven. Here's your dollar or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just oh, give we, them oh, the money, you know? I, but can you imagine being asked to sponsor a student to rock in a chair all night? Like just a, no, oh. exactly. No, yeah, I would. I, I, I would like to think that even if I 
was a father in the 80s, I would have said, uh, Ms. Ms. Funk, you don't have to do that. Here's 10 bucks for your trip <laughs> to France. Don't don't mm. rock all night. <laughs> but, or, or alternately sponsor a proper rockathon, which is, yeah. I'm going to play rock music in the backyard all night. If you guys can stand exactly. 12 hours of kiss, I'll pay for your trip to France myself. Right. Or and if you don't want to hear us rock all night, give us more. Yes, exactly. We'll quit, we'll quit early. Yeah. <laughs> then you could, you could go to England too. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so far, so good. What else do you have there, Carl? <laughs> oh, well, I have in my hands this, this journal. I talked about the journal being like this little confessional. And I remember buying this blue speckled journal, which I dug out of a cardboard box in my crawl space. I knew I still had it. And this would have been grade 11 or so, just the end of grade 11. And I had just started to read contemporary poetry because I had an English teacher who brought in poets like Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. And I remember her talking about how these writers would would write in their journals and then those journal entries would be turned into poems. And so I thought, okay, I need to, if I'm going to ever be a writer, I need to start keeping a journal. And I had kept a journal on and off, a diary on and off, but I, this was my first serious journal. And mm. I will say that my, my biggest influence at the time was E.E. E. Cummings. And for anybody not familiar with the poetry of E.E. E. Cummings, picture a lot of lowercase. And mm -hmm. then I adopted that style. Um, a lot of strange punctuation or punctuation that would not be considered traditional and a lot of whimsy and a sort of, yeah, natural, an attention to the natural world, an obsession with, with love and emotion, but also the quirk and whimsy of almost like a childlike imagination. Mm. So I tried to, I, and of course, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that about E.E. E. Cummings, but I just saw the lowercase letters. So I had a lot of that in my writing and a lot of inversions, weird syntax. So you'll hear that in this, this is the first page of the journal. Once I get the journal, then I've written my name, Carla Funk journal. First entry, it just, first of all, describes what this journal is going to be and what it's not going to be. And there is, everything is in parentheses. <laughs> Every statement is in parentheses, which was my little mm. shout out to E.E. E. Cummings. Um, June 26, 1991. This is going to be my journal. This will not be a diary. This will be thoughts. This will be emotion. This may be poetry. This will be mine and mine alone. That's the opening. And um, so brave. And then, so brave. So brave. And then it goes into, um, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> okay, there. This is very, very E. Cummings here. I'm trying really, really hard. It's all lowercase, um, and you'll hear the weird syntax. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but here we go. Millions of swarming, buzzing words, not yet shaped or formed, but solely for you. I think I was writing about that for a boy, but mm. solely for you, like an air of sweet, a wind of soft, a smile of kind. A you smile are, of kind. I like that. Like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. You are of me. Tears evade this soul. 
I wouldn't even, I don't even know if I would have known what evade really meant, but tears evade the soul. As tears dismiss my cries, you alone are this spirit of cherished freedom. Un, okay, an unwisdom, un, which is essentially saying that he's dumb, I guess, but I wouldn't have known that. An unwisdom, an unsolitaire, an unmyself. Mm. Um, this is not me, yet here I lie on soft onwards, on life upwards, change me to take pride in all I feel as a mortal. And this is with big exclamation point, as myself, as you, I don't even know what I'm talking about there, but gosh, it was all, it was all lowercase. And so I think I felt super deep. Um, Yes. Lowercase immediately makes it super deep. Uh, It's just terrible. (laughs) I don't know. No, no, it's terrible, but well, it's, it's... Yes, but of course it is. But Of course. <laughs> but it's... Int- I don't know if you heard the episode with my sister, where she was just writing... Yes, yes. Today, I, you know, me and Bobby, you know, had a fight, and I like this boy, and so on, right? She wasn't in any way sort of writing uh, poetically, I guess is the right term. She was actually writing journals, but you have taken this journal. It seems like the Sylvia Plath stuff and so on. I said, <laughs> okay, someone's going to read this later. And, you know, uh, my biographers possibly are going to be checking mm-hmm. this later for, for hints to her deeper soul. I better give them stuff right away. Is that what you were thinking? No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have think I wouldn't have wanted anybody to read it, but I think I, I was experimenting with my voice. I, I mean, at 16, 17, I, I didn't know what I sounded like. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know mm. who I'd be. And this is the beauty, I guess, of pushing words around on a page is that at some point, the combination of words starts to sound true. And all of this does not sound true to me. It sounds like the true attempt to sound mm. like something, but it's not. it hasn't locked in yet. Um, when I look at, I can see in this same little speckled journal that I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying out rhymes. D- does rhyme work? No, rhyme doesn't work. I'm trying out E.E. E. Cummings. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying out spiritual poetry. I'm trying out, I have notes about a story idea or, um, or an idea for a play. And I have no, I never wrote this play, but it says just, it's all like bullet point acts emulators, need directed, socially conscious achievers, belongers. Each one has a character rep. And here it says, theme, don't be someone else, be yourself. (laughs) That's going to be the theme of the story or this Mm. play. And I mean, it's ridiculous, but at the same time, I think that was the, the underlying urge of all of the writing that I would have done at that age is don't be someone else. But the irony is that I was trying to sound like someone else in order to figure out who, what my voice was. So, yeah. Do you think that was, I mean, I'm really interested in what people, why they feel their early shit was shit, right? Like what was wrong with it? What do you think was missing in these early attempts? Was it trying to be someone else? Absolutely. Or or maybe not having, a form self that you could, you know, this is pretty young, right? So how old? 16, 17. 
you yeah. know, this was this journal. Yeah. So ab- exactly what you said, it, the, the self isn't formed, is not self-aware, um, is self-conscious, but not aware yet. Mm. And is trying on costumes of voices to sound, to figure mm. out which one fits. And that it's a very natural process. In fact, one of the assignments I used to give students when I taught at the university was to imitate a poet that they really like imitate this poet. And by imitation, you start to find out what you sound like. It's a little bit, I imagine I'm not a dancer, but I imagine a dancer um, learning the choreography of a, a very famous, you know, ballet and then learning to make that choreography their own, taking a melody, singing a melody that is very familiar, but they in singing a familiar melody, they begin to hear what their voice can do with it. So sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you got this E.E. E. Cummings uh, <laughs> thing. What yeah. other writers did you find yourself imitating early on? Oh, Shakespeare, you know, well, my one just go big here. Just go big or go home. Yeah. So yeah, Shakespeare. Um, I have a Sir Philip Sidney sonnet that I wrote in here. And then the next page has a, a poem that I'm trying to sort of play with that rhyme scheme. So I'm trying the. I, I remember buying myself a little anthology of famous love poems, and it was from the beginning of English poetry up till probably Robert Frost, and trying out all of those voices. And it really was. It was like acting. It was like acting, taking hmm. on a role and trying that costume. And what was interesting is this journal sort of makes it right up until I hit university, and then it stops. And then I started writing poetry for a creative writing class. And it, 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 I just find it very interesting that the rest of the journal, it's about two thirds full, the final third, it's empty. And so I stopped writing in the journal, but then I started taking writing more seriously. And uh, I ended up in a poetry class with a very amazing Canadian poet who I believe grew up in Vernon, Patrick Lane. Or he I spent some time right. in Vernon. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. Yeah. 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 Patrick Lane was my first instructor. Mm. Um, of How poetry. was he as a teacher? And, oh, he just scared me and he was amazing. Mm. Um, and the reason that everything shifted for me in my understanding of writing and poetry and why I went in that direction initially was because of Patrick Lane. I remember him reading a poem by a poet named Al Purdy, and it's a poem called Caribou Horses. And there's a line in there about 100 Mile House. And I just, I sat upright in class and I thought, you can write a poem that includes 100 Mile House? Like you Mm. can write 100. And it was about the caribou and these horses. And I thought, wait a minute. I thought poetry had to be Shakespeare and E.E. Cummings and Sexton and Plath. It had to be Mm-hmm. elsewhere mm-hmm. in the world and and i remember patrick lane I, I went into i think for office hours trembling terrified and he said you're from vanderhoof and then he told a story about you know being drunk in a snowbank <laughs> with another canadian poet in vanderhoof, in vanderhoof trying to yeah yeah <laughs> and uh i remember him he whatever he said made me realize that i could write about my life and I could write about Vanderhoof. And I'll just read you the opening of um, 
of a poem. And this was me fiddling around with a poem, but uh, it was the first poem that I turned in for him. And we had to write a narrative poem. So something has to happen in the poem Mm. and it should be something important to you. And I, I remember him saying after I'd turned in the poem, you know, as long as it's not like something like a, you know, a a pet dying. And I thought, Oh no, I wrote about a pet dying. Um, And the poem is not good, but it was me trying to write out of my world. That was true. And, um, and it's a poem. uh, It begins. Don't look. My mother said her words like hands covering my eyes. She tried to pull me away from the window over the kitchen sink. She didn't want me to see through the seven o'clock fog, the uncle's motioning for the lady trucker to roll her muddy low bed wheels back, unlock our small black dog from the tire grip. Outside they squatted, hunched over the dog, shrugging their dark blue shoulders, surrounded by idling machines. They adjusted their company hats while the lady trucker sucked back a cigarette. Don't look, my mother said, holding me her apron cool and clinging to my back. Out the kitchen window, we watched my father search his pickup box, choose a rusty shovel. Everyone stood leaning against machinery, carving in the gravel with boot heels, watching my father drive the shovel blade down. And it was just the scene of of my father having to essentially finish off the dog because she'd been run over by this, this trucker. And I mean, there's this horrible line at the end, which is really, I mean, it's, it's the last lines of the poem are, it doesn't pay to take her to the vet. She's just a dog. It's their terrible last line on which, on which Patrick Lane, he wrote, nope. <laughs> he just crossed out those lines and wrote, nope, no, with, exactly. With cause, um, yeah. But even though the poem is so flawed, there was something true finally. And I remember feeling... I can't say that I was proud of the poem, but I felt like something had shifted in this poem because I was writing about a true thing about my dad and all the men and standing around the machines and Mm. this dog getting run over by this trucker woman who was just standing there feeling bad and smoking on her, smoking her cigarette. And, and it was just the true world that I grew up in. And yeah. And I, I just, even though there were problems all over the place, I felt like I told, I told the truth and sure. that felt like a shift to me versus trying to sound like E.E. E. Cummings and using phrases like a smile of kind. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone stood leaning on machinery. Is that the line? That's a Everyone great line. Everyone stood leaning against machinery. Yeah. That's a really good line. And see, I, I wouldn't have <laughs> I like known that then that, that things like, boot heels and machines and truckers and pickup boxes and dogs, you know, and rusty Mm. shovel blades. I wouldn't have known that that was stuff you could put in a poem until Patrick Lane. He read poems that showed the concrete blue collar world that was so familiar to me. And I just, I think something in me just lit up with this idea, this possibility of the world I so desperately wanted to escape as a teenager. And now I'm, I'm away from it. I'm sitting in a classroom away from my hometown. And now suddenly I'm being given permission to go back home in my writing. And I, I found mm. that just so I, I don't, I didn't liberating, fully, liberating for sure. But um, it just felt 
it felt good. It felt good to be able to write it, process it. And yeah. Hmm. That may be what this podcast is really about, actually, is those moments when you break through the what you think being a writer or a poet is into that first moment of I actually wrote something, right? <laughs> Instead mm. of pretending to be E.E. E. Cummings or Jack Kerouac yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. But it's also like you were saying before, I wish everybody would write a memoir about the little small things so that they don't disappear, right? Yes, yes. I just, I, this is what I love about the memoir form is that it invites, it invites us as human beings to, to sit with another human. And it really, it's opening up, not just the, the door of their home, it's the door of their heart and their brain and, yeah. and saying, come in, come in and, and, um, and taste this, this life, <laughs> taste it. And I, I love that. I think it, writing is, it's, husp it, it's an act of hospitality in some way of, of welcoming somebody in. And I, I yeah, honestly, I'll pass people, you know, I'm sure you pass people regulars, right? You see the same people. If you go, I always walk my dog around the lake. So I see the same people. And I think sometimes I would read your memoir. I would love to read your memoir mm. because all I'm getting is small talk right now. And I want to punch through the small talk. Um, I think what I was doing in my journal Jason was small talk. I was small talking. <laughs> right. And I was lowercase small talking, like E.E. E. Cummings. And then suddenly <laughs> it, it punched through into something that was a real conversation that I was I was having with myself initially. Mm. But it was it went deeper than small talk. And uh and I want that. I want people, I want all the memoirs of people that I see small talk with i'm like tell me your real story i love that and i think for a lot of writers starting out it's it's not only small talk it's pretentious small talk oh it's not even oh, small so talk pretentious. it's pretentious elevated talk or <laughs> you think it is anyway but it's not oh. i wrote a poem about death well no you didn't yeah. <laughs> you know i wrote a poem about everything bad Right. And instead of using three words, let me use 25 to say yes. what I could yeah, say in yeah. three words. Yeah. <clears throat> I find that the, the so many people that I've talked to and my own struggles with writing are, yeah, through those early days of copying everybody that I really admired, which I guess is the work you have to go through anyway. That's all worthwhile. It's funny later. It's not funny at the time. <laughs> it's deadly serious at the time. But yes, you're right. When you when you break through, you can actually feel it happen, right? It's a revelatory moment, isn't it? And ter uh, terrifying. I remember doing a little exercise for that class where we had to write a little character. We had to write a like a character sketch, but in I think it was eight lines or something. And I chose my father, and my father is just a he was a complicated person for me. Um, you know, struggled with alcoholism and. Um, you know, had to leave school in grade eight because that was just what men and I, young men did. They went and worked and brought in money for the family. And he had a, you know, not an easy life. And I, I started writing and, and I, I, I just wrote, I remember being told you have to be concrete. And I'm like, okay, that was a new term for me, concrete, show, don't tell. You know, I'm learning all these mm -hmm. writing cliches, but they weren't cliche to me yet. And I wrote something about engine oil, rye whiskey, 
and export A. And, and then I, that was my opening line to describe my father, which was my father. He mm. smelled like engine oil and export A cigarettes and rye whiskey. And just writing those three details, I knew I was telling the truth. And I, I can remember sitting at my, I had this, you know, the giant monitors and the big computer processor, because it would have been 1992, I guess. And the big dot matrix printer, you know, mm. with the, the paper that had the tear off sides and it made so much noise and it printed and it took forever. Yes, I remember I yes. like printing it, printing it off and it did, 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 did you know, the <laughs> printer. And then looking at the words on paper and I just knew I was telling the truth. There was nothing profound about it except that I recognized I was finally telling the truth and I was right. writing nothing the truth. profound except that it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And that, so that was the start of maybe trying to sound more like Carla Funk and less like E.E. E. Cummings. Um, right. Yeah. Hmm. Let E.E. E. Cummings be E.E. E. Cummings. <laughs> and he's, he's pretty good too. But oh, yeah. He's, he's, I, I couldn't write like that. I'm not, I'm not that person, but you know, like I said, we're just small talking and trying on costumes. <laughs> trying on costumes. I like that too, because it's worthwhile. And you got to try on a couple, right? Not just settle for E.E. E. Cummings. Man, try, try a couple others. You know, try them all, actually. Absolutely. I tried some, I tried to be dark and depressing and that didn't quite work so well. Um, right. I, I tried a lot of poems. I mean, I, I started... I started writing, um, I just started, I, I was just writing poems and poems and poems after this Patrick Lane class, just all every day I'm writing poems. And when I look back at them, I made a little, do du a red duotang um, collection. Duotang. Oh yeah. The duotang. And I even have it. I say it's printed at, and then I have my address of my apartment by the Raven PR 9101 multi-mode printer. <laughs> Uh, and um and all of these poems most of the poems are so uh, visceral um so like over the top in their blood and and violence and and I was mm. just it was like yeah it was very very weird it was a weird phase there's a lot about those at hand oh yeah let's see here um I think I was starting to try and write bad idea to try and use my dreams as inspiration for my poems. But let's see. Sounds very promising. Um, here's one called The Blues. I play the blues like a cannibal chews his own flesh. I feed. I devour. I forget I am tasting my own blood. This black piano has become my suicide weapon. I stab, I swallow, I shoot at myself again and again, missing every time. The keys are slippery with blood and open nothing. Mm, you see, I'm playing with piano keys and my mm. keys, so clever. Open nothing except memories of staged performances. Oh, and then it goes on and on about like blood and weapons and like, what? I was not a blues pianist, but I was trying. Or suicidal. No, no. Just a second, Carla. This black piano has become my suicide weapon. <laughs> that's, if I ever, I don't know, make an album, that's the title. 
This is by That's your band great. Vanderhoof. This is yes. by your yeah your band Vanderhoof. Great. Yeah, take that line. Let it let it inspire whatever Vanderhoof album. This black piano. <laughs> this black piano, and then in parentheses has become ah. my suicide. Yes, weapon. Yes, and please make it all lowercase, okay? And then in the video, I am filmed strutting away from the camera. <laughs> yes, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, all lowercase, taking off my jacket. Yes. Of course. Excellent. This, Excellent. This, this color. That's wonderful. This black piano has become my suicide weapon. Yeah. Oh, and, and I had a I had a black piano in my little apartment. It was an electric piano and with all the cheesy sounds and mm. oh gosh. Yeah. It would have not been a suicide weapon. It might have been a weapon of torture for the neighbors around me, but that's about it. Writing memoirs. Were you reading lots of memoirs at the time? Or did you sort of think, I'd rather not because I want this to be my own thing? No, I love, I've always loved reading memoirs. And part of it is my nosy nature of wanting to know <laughs> things about people's lives. Like I just, if I run into, you know, I'm on the trail and I, this happened to me, actually. I, I saw a man standing on a trail. He was sawing a branch off a tree. And, and I just went up and said, what are you doing? And and we started chatting and, you know, the next thing, you know, he's telling me about his, his colon cancer and how he can't eat corn anymore and telling me where he lives and how he wishes that he could get himself some plums. And I mean, we had a whole thing going on and, and I'll, I'll stand there and talk to get more of this person's life because I may never see that person again. And I'm like, people are amazing. So mm. Memoirs to me are a gift and I love reading about people's lives. What are what are some of your favorites? Um, I can tell you some of my favorite memoir writers because the books all blend together for me a lot of the time. I, I really I love I mean I love David Sedaris. I think I think David Sedaris is an incredible talent. I think his books are wonderful and his curiosity about people and things is really invigorating. Sorry, you may have been about to say something else, but that no, what you said is exactly what I feel about his work and that I I love and I recognize um, that urge in myself, which is I want to know about people. I, I, it annoys my husband to no end. um, He's so patient. But if we're in a group, uh, we're at a Christmas party or something like that, I'm the person trying to push past the small talk by asking questions that will get me inside the mind of this person. And so, I mean, I'm just, mm. you know, I'm just pushing, I'm, I'm coming up with questions on the fly, but there was the one year where I said to, you know, this group of people standing there and I said, well, so, you know, would you rather be married to three wives or be one of three husbands to one wife? <laughs> and the man and his wife are standing there and, and the woman <laughs> says, well, I'd rather be, I'd rather be, I wouldn't want three husbands. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather have other wives and they could help with the work around the house. And, and Mm -hmm. the man was like, yeah, I can get with three wives. And then she's like, what? And it starts this whole thing between them. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. And I'm just standing back. I'm thinking, I love this. Like I'm getting to see people's inner workings a bit. Um, So yeah, I, I love to ask questions and get people talking in terms of that, so I love that about David Sedaris's writing, his memoirs, mm. his essays, and yes, uh, he has a gift for somehow being able to draw people 
to admit things or tell him things. And he, I think he's a good question asker and he's genuinely curious. Yeah, so I love it. him for that. Um, I really love, there's a, a memoirist in the States named Danny Shapiro. And I like her approach to memoir writing, which is to take a slim slice of her life. She's not trying to tell the whole story. Right. And that's what you did too, right? Yeah. 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 So I, I like that. Um, there, there's a writer named Patricia Hampel, H-A-M-P-L. She's quite excellent at writing. Joan Didion is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually, I know it's such a popular memoir, but I thought it was wonderful. The Glass Castle. Um, Jeanette Sorry, Wall. The Glass I, Tiger? <laughs> yeah. What, it should have been. No. The Glass, the glass? Castle. <laughs> oh, okay. The Glass Castle. Yeah. There should be a memoir called The Glass Tiger. The Glass um, Castle. Yes by Jeanette Wall is I think a great memoir. There's just so many I could name, but. Uh, Have you ever yeah. read Nabokov's memoir, uh, Speak Memory? Yes. Yeah. Love it. It's been yeah. years since I read it, but fantastic. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good one. And the other one for me, I love memoirs too. I think maybe for the same reason as you just, wow, people are really interesting. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is Paul Oster's, Winter Journal. Oh, no, I don't know this one. And one that I've everyone tells me about is Liars Club by Mary mm, Carr. Mary Carr. Yeah. Have you yeah, read that? It's great. Yes, I have. She's okay. She's fantastic. Actually, she has a book called The Art of Memoir about writing memoir. And it's a bit of a how-to practical guide. I found that book wonderful when I was starting to poke around in prose and memoir writing. The Art of Memoir, great book. paragraph from yes. uh, your memoir from every little scrap in wonder because i just i really love this paragraph cool i will read it yes for sure okay so this paragraph comes from a chapter called oh little town and it it's a bit of a love letter the whole book is a bit of a love letter to my hometown but this chapter in particular is just a re-immersion in the wonder and and the world of that town that I was born into and didn't fully understand until I moved away from it. But back we go to Little Vanderhoof. The town sprawled over a grid of streets that stretched beyond my experience, seemed to me inexhaustible. There were still alleys and streets I'd never walked down whole neighborhoods bordering the core that were full of houses, full of families, full of kids whose names I didn't even know. On the outskirts and beyond were the rural districts, Sinket, Mapes, Klukas, Brayside, all geographies that marked the people who lived there. To live out at Mapes meant you raised livestock, usually hogs, sheep and cattle, and definitely horses. To be from Klukas Lake, made you backwoods tough and tuned to wildness. Those around the base of Sinket Mountain hunted, held trap lines, and fished the creek. The Brayside families farmed in wide open river-fed fields of wheat, hay, canola, and barley, and raised dairy herds. 
We drove the narrow gravel roads, past acres and acres, without a single house in sight, until the world looked uniformly uninhabited. But the town itself, the village center, full of people whose daily work dressed them up in ironed shirts and slacks, blouses and skirts, teachers, municipal workers, bank clerks, and insurance brokers, remained the true exotic. I love that paragraph. Thank you, Jason. I'm, I'm delighted. My, I'm, my headphones are going to die. They are dying here. <laughs> That's a, it's good to put an end to my waffling. Where, <laughs> can people, where can people find you and your work, Carla? They can find me at www.carlafunk.com and they can find my work out there on all sorts of sites and probably in independent and regular bookstores. But that's uh, that's me out there in the world. And your most recent book? My most recent book is Mennonite Valley Girl, A Wayward Coming of Age, a memoir of growing up, teenage, wanting to escape in the late 80s, early 90s my beloved hometown of Vanderhoof, British Columbia. And it's fantastic. I urge everybody to rush out to buy it. Carla, thank you so much. Jason, thank you. It's just been a pleasure to talk and cringe over early writing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Many thanks to Carla Funk. And make sure you check out Mennonite Valley Girl. It's ace. Thanks also to Wayne MD for the artwork, Joe MD for the intro, Sasha MD for the outro, the immortal beloved for tea and sympathy, and DJ Max in Tokyo for the music. Join the conversation at Writers Read the Early Crap on Facebook and Writers Read the Early Shit on Instagram there. If you'd like to support the show, You can do so by liking, subscribing, and leaving a comment. And also at buymeacoffee.com slash W-R-T-E-S. Link in the description. Back soon. Thank you for listening. Sasha, did you think that episode was interesting? A little bit. Do you want to come on as a guest one day? No, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye.